Well, hello there, deal makers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. We got a super awesome guest, Jordan Harbinger of the Jordan Harbinger Show, huge podcaster. He's here on the show today. I cannot wait to share with you that conversation. First, though, a shout out to an iTunes reviewer, TJP New York City, who wrote this and has reviewed this podcast has changed the way I look at real estate. Michael has great guests on who offer great insight into their respective businesses. Look forward to new episodes. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Also want to do a shout out. It's all about a deal makers. Every time someone does a deal, we celebrate that person. And this, this week, is Jonathan Graham. He did his first 153-unit deal in Sun Valley, Idaho, $4.9 million. His mentor was Andrew Kuhn. If you're some of our, our mentoring students, they tend to do larger deals out of the gate. There's nothing wrong with doing a smaller deal like a duplex or a 10-unit. You can do this without any experience or cash at all, and you can learn how to do that. If you do want to do a bigger deal right out of the gate, then check out our mentoring program. It allows you to scale your, your business faster and avoid some of the bigger mistakes. So check it out. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You you can schedule a call with us and you can see if mentoring is right for you. With that, let's bring on Garrett. Garrett Lynch, what's going on? What's going on, Michael? Hey, so I want to talk about building relationships uh, with investors. One of the things that we've done very well, I think, on Nighthawk is, is building relationships with investors so that they not only invest again and again, but actually and start investing more. What are the things that we've done over the last year, you think, to do that? Yeah. So I think we made this a focus like more recently because we realized like, Hey, we can only go so far with, you know, people that come in that they listen to the podcast or whatever, like we, we need to start forming more personal relationships. And so we've pivoted our focus into people that have, you know, a higher means, I guess, to be able to invest more money. So, th and that's just strategic, obviously, you know, if we have, you know, a thousand investors, and, you know, we probably want to spend time with the people that are, are the most valuable to us on both sides. And, and there's, there's really a relationship that can start there. I honestly, I've started up front with people and I said, listen, we have a whole vetting process, obviously it was like, who's who. And then when we get into that, if they have a certain, you know, level of investment that they can make, then they're, they're actually on my personal list. And I, I had the conversation I have with that person is, Hey, you know, we're looking for X amount of dollars. If you invest over that, then at this certain level, so I think it's like a quarter million or something, then you're going to talk to me directly. And that's kind of my threshold. If it's less than that, it doesn't really make sense for me to spend time with you because we're just looking, we have a lot of people at this lower level or whatever. And so right instantly they're like, oh, well, yeah, I do want to talk to, you know, the partner of the firm. And I think I, I you know, I should do that. Or I could do that. And after that, an amazing relationship happens where you're constantly texting, keeping in touch with those people on everything you're doing. They become your friends. And that's really where you want to go is to get to that level and just include them on your business. If you're on site, text them pictures. Uh, if you're, if something great is happening, let them know. If you're having a challenge, let them know. Just like a normal relationship you'd have with anyone. And those people will become your biggest champions in business and they'll invest more with you over and over again. 
Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is that you build relationships, and and I think you're you're talking about the fact that we have uh, at this point, you know, thousands of investors. It's very difficult to call every one of them, so you do have to segment them a little bit. But if you don't have as many, you're doing the same thing that Garrett says. You're building relationships. Yes, you're having your conversation. You're sending them text messages when you're on site. You're saying, "Hey, how's it going?" Maybe you send them a gift every once in a while. All those things make a major difference. Most indicators aren't willing to go to that kind of length, and so building relationships before you actually need something is. Actually Actually, a really important point. Actually, we talk about that with Jordan here in just a second. And so let's talk about Jordan. He's a he actually started off being an American lawyer and he became an entrepreneur. And today is one of the biggest podcasters, you know, on the planet. He has super awesome people on his on his show. And uh, it's called the Jordan Harbinger Show. Currently holding in iTunes a top 100 consistently with quarter million downloads per episode. He was also well, he was a Wall Street attorney. He speaks, he's an interesting guy. He speaks like five languages, spent several years abroad in Europe in the developing world, including South America. He's even been through war zones and been kidnapped twice. So it's an interesting guy. Really enjoy this interview now with Jordan Harbinger. Here we go. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. Jordan Hardminger, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. So Jordan, you and I have some kind of crazy things that we were doing uh, back in the actually kind of around the same time. Mm-hmm. I so I'm one of the few people that I've I know about that have gone to North Korea. And so when I find someone else that has actually done that. It's pretty interesting to me. And you've actually built yeah. a tour company around going to North Korea. So you kind of went to like the next yeah. level. So guys like yeah. me, they sign up and then they yeah. freak out for a month and they're like, oh, shoot, I'm, I got to go to North Korea. You're right. like, shoot, I'm going to, I got to take like gotta 20 people. This. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make some money on this. Exactly. This yeah. Like, huh, how do I turn this into a business that's unnecessarily complicated to run? Yeah. <laughs> How do I get on the wrong side of the U.S. Department of Treasury? Uh, that was the that was the part I didn't think about. Yeah, it's that was funny because of course, like every sort of business owner is always like, "Oh, I got to figure out the angles here," and it's like, just go on a freaking vacation, man. Calm down. Uh, but right. I used to own I used to own how to go to North which surprisingly was not taken. I wow. bought that. Didn't have to buy it from a broker or anything. Can you can you believe it? So I bought that, and of course, it you know, as it as it were, it showed up first in Google. So we basically just did a bunch of arbitrage where we'd do lead gen, and then we would say, "Oh yeah, you should go with this company and this company," and then we, they would pay us for the lead if they closed, and it worked really well. It was just kind of like really easy money. It, it didn't. I would like to say it ran itself, but the problem with a lot of tour companies is especially to exotic places like that is they're run by really good people. Like I love the people that have, have done tours in North Korea with us, but a lot of them are like, you know, this, a lot of people who run what could be a really successful business because there's almost no competition and they do the the thing that they do really well. They're not good at marketing. They're not good at sales. They're not good at like running leads through the their pipeline and stuff like that. Like, what do you call it? Like nurture sequences types of, they just don't have it. They don't really care to learn it. So it was a lot of work, but most of the work was educating the actual vendor. Like you should have a salesperson that calls people back within a week of them saying they're interested in this because 
you're literally letting hot leads with a credit card in their hand be like, oh, I guess they're out of business. You know, it's like that stuff like that was infinitely frustrating. And then as you know, one of the tour companies, which was sort of like negligent, not sort of, which was grossly negligent, ended up sort of contributing to the death of Otto Warmbier. And then it was like, okay, this and, is it. A- and that's the one I went on, by the way. Right. I yeah, actually well. had this exact same tour guide. Uh, so, you know, this kind of leads back to is, I don't know, I I feel like you you and I definitely have this in Michael as well, but there's this certain type of like fearlessness and curiosity. I can't, I don't even know how to describe it that comes with being able to do things like this. And mm-hmm. obviously there's advantages and disadvantages to, to having that kind of mentality. Do you think having this kind of mentality has more advantages or, or yeah, disadvantages and, and why? Yeah, I mean, it depends. I think it has more advantages, but I'm also not like, I know a lot of like business owners or entrepreneurs, I should say, that have a lot of sort of risk tolerance and throw caution to the wind stuff, but they're also, there's people that I think go over the line where they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna go hella skiing, but we're gonna go in this really dangerous place where the air is thin and there's no rescuing, but like no one's there and it's, eh, I'm good. Or like, you know, look, if you wanna skydive, cool, it's it's relatively safe as far as extreme sports go, but like if you're putting on a wingsuit, I'm good, I'm, I'm gonna pass on that. There's a lot of adrenaline junkies like that. And it, it, it was funny because when I was going to North Korea, a guy I know that I think is kind of a knucklehead and has the equation backwards. He's also a, a business owner, an entrepreneur. And he's like, why don't you just race motorcycles? North Korea is dangerous. And of course, now that guy has been in like serious motorcycle accidents. And I'm like, traveling to a country is not as dangerous as riding a motorcycle at 150 miles an hour on a track, dummy. But, you know, there's people that do things in my opinion, they're a little bit too risk averse. It's like, look, man, you are throwing caution to the wind, but there's not like a greater strategy here for prosperity. You're just throwing shit at the wall to see what works. And sometimes stuff really works. And then you waste the money on your next throw shit at the wall and see what works. It's like, there's a concept in trading. You guys might know this more than me. There's a quote that's like, nobody ever went broke selling when they're up by 10% or something something like that, right? And you do it when you're trading currency or now cryptocurrency. If you want to be in the game for a while, trade when you're up by double-digit percent. Don't wait for 32x for each one because most of them go to zero. So a lot of these entrepreneurs who have this non-risk-averse, sorry, like risk-tolerant mindset, they will constantly win, lose, win, lose, win, lose, win, lose. And it's like, well, where are you getting off the train? You know, the merry-go-round eventually stops and you either can't make the money back you wise up and you keep the money, which, you know, no. And you see this with like athletes and people who can't control their spending and can't control it. So I think for at a certain, if you have a dash of it, great. You know, a lot of my friends are like, oh man, where'd you get the idea to quit law and start a business? And I was like, where'd you get the idea to stay in law? Well, let me, like, let me ask you about, you know let me ask I mean? you, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, right? Now, yeah. Jordan, right? But you're, you're a freaking lawyer. Like mm-hmm. it's interesting because we have a lot of entrepreneurs come through us. They want to get into real estate. Right. Very few of them are lawyers. So in other words, there's not much yeah. of an entrepreneurial spirit in a lawyer. So what? Ha- how did you discover that you're actually an entrepreneur? And then what gave you the courage to actually act on it? So I was never really a fit for law school, I would say. I mean, not not law school. Law school was, was pretty cool, actually. But for being a lawyer, I, I could have if I stayed a lawyer, I there are plenty of lawyer entrepreneurs. You see them on TV all the time. They either have those ads or they're like running for an office somewhere or they are in control of their own law firm, whatever it is. There's plenty of business owning and entrepreneurial lawyers. For me, I just wasn't really ever interested in it. I was mostly interested in just, I I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that 
getting an undergrad degree wasn't probably going to get me a job. And so then I started working on Wall Street and then I started getting really into like dating and relationship stuff. And then when I was on Wall Street, I had my serious XM radio show and I'd already started my podcast in my friend's basement during law school, just as sort of like a fun hobby. And when I was on Sirius XM radio, I was like, well, wait a minute. If I'm on a nationally syndicated radio show that I run after like a year of podcasting, I obviously can do this. You know, I'm obviously good enough to run a show. So there's some, this has legs. And then when the real estate market sort of tanked in 2008 and banks and other clients of my law firm were going out of business, they were like, oh, everyone has to get new jobs basically. And I was like, well, I can either make a go of it now and just do the radio thing and do the coaching thing that I was doing and run the show that eventually became the Jordan Harbinger show, or I can like get another job I don't want in another area of practice that I don't want with a bunch of people that I might not even get along with. So I decided to just drop it and go. And it, it was in part because there was no work for me at the law firm. Things were probably going to wrap up. The firm actually later went out of business after I left. So I left right before they were like, we're laying everyone off, you know, and then they and then it was over. Other things that encouraged me to go were since the market had tanked all around, I had investment banker friends that were out of a job. I had other lawyer friends that were out of a job. There were hundreds and hundreds of us. So it wasn't like shame or also like you're leaving. And it also wasn't like, you're a total idiot. Why are you leaving this super stable job? It was like, okay, well, everyone's effed. So what's the difference? And then I had a bunch of friends who were lawyers that were like, well, we're all getting laid off. And I'm like, where are you going? What are you going to do? And a bunch of them were like, you know what? I'm just going to go work for my dad. Or they were like, you know, I've always loved music. I'm just going to play. I'm 26, 25. I'm going to play at bars for a couple of years and like sort of leisurely look for a job. I don't really care. And I was like, hmm, if you're going to go for a music career, which has like a one in a million chance, less one in a million chance of working, I've already got a business. I'm already at Sirius XM Satellite Radio doing a weekly show that's popular and my podcast is already launched. I'm a dumbass for not giving a business that I, that's already working a go if you're going to freaking literally try and be the next Paul McCartney at open mic night. Like, I'm an idiot for not giving it a shot. When you got into it, though, there wasn't like a lot of money around it then, I feel like, right? Like you were kind of no, like in the early stage. Yeah. So like, how did you, how do you like think you're like, well, I still got to survive here. Like, what, yeah, what, I mean, what I saved there? a ton of money. I, I saved a ton of money from Wall Street because it was like, okay, you get paid. Well, now it's not a ton of money, but it was back then. I'm getting paid, you know, 16 grand a month or whatever. I'm living in an apartment with a bunch of friends. And I'm eating freaking ramen noodles and burgers and stuff, man. Like I don't have, you know, I'm paying my student loans off and whatnot, but I've got all this money for saved from wall street. Like I could, I have two, three years of runway and y the ignorance to think, oh, well, it's how long can it take to get a business off the ground? Three months, four months, you know, like full time, I'll be great. And it took years obviously, but you know, at the time you're sort of ignorant of that. And also I was doing I had some ads on the podcast. I had some coaching stuff that I was doing. You know, I had phone coaching. I had live coaching that people wanted from me. So I was sort of like making, I was making way less. I took a major pay cut from Wall Street to do my own thing. But I was also like waking up at 10 o'clock and going to bed at 3 a.m. and like working all the time and not feeling like it was work. It was awesome. So I really prioritized quality of life. And part of the reason I could do that was we, even though I had a shitload of student loans, I was, I had money saved. I could pay the minimum. And also they were like, do you want to defer your loans? We heard you lost your job. And I was like, mm, I'll pay off like the minimum minimum. And if you want to reduce the minimum minimum, that gives me more, more runway. So like, let's do that. Yeah. So somewhere along the way, like on this journey, you discovered what you call a secret game. 
And there's this really, really interesting analogy that you, it's called dig the well before you're thirsty mm. that I heard you speak about. And ever since I heard it, it's been like replaying in my mind over and over again. I just think it's, it's so crisp and, and, and the way that, that uh, you put that together is, is genius. Can you talk about that? What that means? Yeah. So dig the well before you're thirsty is sort of this uh, metaphor for building relationships before you need them. I didn't make up that phrase. I think it's a book title from like the 90s from some sales guy. But the idea, th the thing is, most people think about networking when they need something. And I saw this like firsthand when, when Wall Street had its collapse, Lehman Brothers and, and Bear Stearns went out of business. And people were like, oh my God, I got to call people and try and get another job. And I was like, oh, you're, you're totally screwed. You know, and they're like, why aren't you worried? And I'm like, ah, I'm already at SiriusXM. I've got my side hustle. I've got a bunch of people that I, I can work with or for. Like, I'm good. And they're like, w we, I got to call my classmates and my friend who's working at this bank now. And I haven't talked to him in four years since I graduated. And it was just, they were so stressed out. And I was just calling people that I saw two weeks ago or whatever. And I was like, hey, this is the situation. You know, can I do this and that and the other thing? And they were like, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, see you on Friday. So that was really an obvious win. And as I went through my career and my life, I was like, okay, this is the most important thing ever. Because how many times do you get a call from someone where you haven't talked to them in like five years and you're like, okay, so what is this? Like Scientology, Herbalife, like what's your deal? You know, what, what's this nonsense gonna be that you're trying to push on me? Let me guess, amazing opportunity that can't wait, limited time only? Like, no thanks, guy I haven't seen since Cub Scouts. I'm, I'm out. And you realize now that like, you sound like that if you call and say, hey, buddy, what's going on? It's been so long. So I got fired and I really need a job. And I like like my last day is on Friday and it's Tuesday. You know, they're like, "Ooh, uh, sorry to hear about that. Best of luck. I don't really know anyone who's hiring. If you've been talking to those people every six months for the last five years, then they're going to want to help you, right? They're your friends, and they might keep an eye out for you. They might be able to vouch for you at their own company. They might turn your resume in. If it's somebody I haven't talked to in five years, I'm not handing your resume up, dude. You know, like, I don't know you anymore. You could be a psycho for all I know. I'm not staking my reputation for you, and we're not friends. So you have to be really careful about that. That's digging the well before you get thirsty, sort of in brief. And most people don't bother doing this because they, and it's normal, they're not selfish, they just don't think about what other people can do for them or what they can do, more importantly, what they can do for other people when they don't need anything because it's not top of mind. So I teach people a bunch of systems to keep other people top of mind or at least to keep the system reminding you to, to talk to those people because that's digging the well before you're thirsty, creating and maintaining relationships before you need them. And if you don't do it, you will find out at some point the hard way. And it's unfortunate because my Feedback Friday, which is our advice segment on the Jordan Harbinger Show, our inbox there is full of people that are like, okay, I know what you're gonna say. You should have dug the well before you get thirsty. But now I really need this and I got fired and I lost this and I need help. What do I do? What's the emergency plan? And I go, the emergency plan, plan B, is plan A, only you're desperate now. And so you're going to reek of desperation. Your results are going to come slower. And also you're probably screwed in the short term. In the long term, you'll end up being fine if you're doing this right. But in the short term, you're going to be annoying everyone who you reach out to because your agenda reeks and you're in trouble. You are in trouble. And they're like, no, no, no. But like the secret plan B that you would do. And I was like, I would never be in this situation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know. 
If you're interested in passively investing in multifamily syndications, we'd love to hear from you. Go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button and uh, join our investment club. Fill out a short form and then you can have a call with us and we'd be happy to share with you some of our upcoming investment opportunities we have. That's nighthawkequity.com. Talk to you soon. That it, it, this is interesting. In, in our world, networking is super relevant because you're building a relationship with brokers, very important, and also with investors, right? What you're saying is when you need to mm-hmm. raise money or need to find a deal, that is that it's too late. You have to have a relationship before then. And one of the things you do very well, I think your superpower is definitely relationship building. I mean, you got yeah Dennis Rodman and Matthew McConaughey mm-hmm. on, on your show. So you definitely want to start these relationships well in advance. We've had some people on the, on the show, and it takes a long time to get them on the show. So clearly, you got to. If you want someone on the show down the road, you got to start now. The question is, how do you do it? Like, what is your, you know, what do you do to try to get Matthew McConaughey or Dennis Rodman? And think back, maybe to the mm-hmm. earlier days, you know, when you didn't have quarter million downloads per episode. You know, right? You're like, yeah, because because now you're you're making up for it with hustle, right? Somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, so obviously you started earlier, but what was it? Why did that make you different than the other podcaster? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just being in the game for a long time. I think there's a stat somewhere, I don't know where exactly it is, but it's something like all almost all podcasters quit before episode 13 or 9 or whatever the number is, and it's it's like, I'm in over a thousand right now, if you count all my previous show and my current show, the Jordan Harbinger show. So, like, you're quitting after episode 13, what do you expect? And so, for me, like, there's there are guests in my inbox, it's funny, like, after... Uh, I, I won't jinx it because every time I announce a big guest, they're always like, can we reschedule for February of next year? And I'm like, oh, now I look like a dipshit. You know, um, like I've had Kobe on and I've had all these really well-known people on the show and people will go, oh my God, how did that happen? It's so lucky, this, that. And I'm like, try for two years. And eventually they're like, okay, this guy's been politely persistent for literally years. I'm kind of a dick if I don't make this happen for him, if it's at all possible. And there's always one or two slots where it is, quote unquote, at all possible, right? Like the publisher of so-and-so famous person, Matthew McConaughey's new book, knows who you are, knows you're not a jerk, knows you're not entitled, knows you also have, it's worth their while to do it. That's also important, right? If you have 12,000 listeners or 2,000, it's not really worth that person's time. Just time-wise, it's not gonna happen. But if you have a bunch, you get that by working for 14 years or whatever to get to that position, then the rest of it is networking. You you can't just be all relationships. That's another thing is people will be like, oh, people will say this like, oh, so you're taking opportunities away from people that really deserve them through your networking skills. And I'm like, what makes you deserve it more than me? Your sense of entitlement? You know, like, oh, I also have these numbers. Why aren't I getting those guests? Well, it's not the publicist's job to find out who has 5,000 more people than me listening to the show. I'm making their job easy. I'm referring them to other people. That makes their job even easier. I'm polite. I'm responsive. I don't go, no, you have to do this my way because I'm important and I have a big show. I don't do any of that nonsense. you know. And so people would rather work with me. And so it, it's really... Interesting, because people will accuse people who are good at networking of taking something that belongs to someone else. And it's like, this isn't nepotism. I'm not like, oh, I got into law school because my dad is the dean. That's unfair, okay? What's not unfair is knowing how to leverage relationships to get people to fight for you, because that's how literally the entire world works. And so those people that are like, oh, but I have an A plus average and he has an A minus average. It's like, did you ever think that maybe people like me more than you and there's value in that? And those people will refuse to acknowledge that there's value there. And and the truth is because they don't know how to be likable or help other people 
in any way that's not just look at what I can do for you, you know, in terms of keeping my head down and working. And that's not enough. You know, if you want to be great at Amazon, you can't just be the best coder on staff. That'll get you three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, but you're never going to get promoted. If you're wondering why the person you hired four years ago is now your boss, it's because they know how to build alliances and connections. And it's not that they brown nose their way to the top. It's that they are able to manage people better than you because you didn't freaking try. You know, you were like, but I know COBOL. Okay, cool. You're the best guy in the basement. Congratulations. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? Oh, uh, yeah, abs absolutely. It, it it does. And and what I'm hearing you say is you want to be politely persistent. That's the thing. And when you're when you're reaching out to people, you know, you're probably not asking for a bunch of stuff. You're probably figuring out some way to provide value to these to these guys. That's the key, right? So politely persistent. So how do you do it with people like you know Dennis and Kobe? Like you know they they really don't need anything, really. How do you provide value to a person right. like that? I mean, we have but that's we not have true. investors. Well, okay, good point. Not, we have investors yeah, I mean, who are worth. $30 million, and you're like, well, yeah. what can I possibly do for you? And you got to right. look for an angle. Like, what is, what is, an, yeah. like, how do you find that angle? So to my earlier point, being politely persistent is not just reaching out when you need something. You should be using CRM and systems to make sure that you're checking in every three months, six months, whatever. I use Superhuman for email, and it's like, boomerang this in three months if no reply. Or if they're like, oh, check back again in July. I'm like, great, July 2, bounce this back into my inbox. You know, don't be emailing them every week. Don't be like, hi, just wanted to see how your Thursday is going. Like none of that nonsense. You're just wasting their time. Just politely persistent with systems. You're not going to remember everybody you need to reach out to. The other thing is to answer your, your current question here is everybody. I mean, there's people I know that have like tons of, well, all right. Mark Cuban, billionaire, has tons of people coming at him all the time. What does he want more? Opportunities. He's never going to go, oh, how dare you introduce me to this successful company that's taking on investment right now? But he has a billion dollars, Jordan. He doesn't need anything. That's nonsense. Complete nonsense. Oh, Kobe doesn't need anything. That Well, I, okay, bad example. But like a super A-list celebrity, they don't need anything. Are you sure? They have a book and they're promoting it. Why are they reaching out to me if they don't need anything? Are you sure they don't need to know which other outlets sell books well and are going to do a good job? The publicist is probably sitting there with a list of 6,000 podcasts. She doesn't really know where to start. Her friend told me about me. And I go, you know where else you should get them? This guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy. Don't mail info at thejordanharbingershow.com. Email this guy, Jordan, that I know. And I'm introducing them to the hosts and the assistant and the show booker. And she's like, oh, great. Now I'm not going into the customer service inbox for this person, yada, yada, yada. And I'm sending them a list of who would be good. And people are like, you're sending them a list of your competitors? You're crazy. Well, maybe, but I'm making their job a lot easier and they're not going to go, oh, thanks, Jordan. By the way, now I'm going to screw you and not book this person on your show. I'm only going to use your contacts. That has never happened. I suppose it could happen at some point, but it's very unlikely. And a publicist is very unlikely to do that because their whole job is also relationships. So there's also some horse trading that comes with that. Like if you're going to book Dwayne Wade on my show, you're probably going to bring me some first time author that's going to be a good fit too, but isn't famous. And I'm going to be like, okay, let me read your pitch instead of just going, not a celebrity, delete, right? So there is some horse trading or give and take, but Everybody needs something. I don't care who they are. Like Barack Obama freaking had a book release and he hired a publicist. Why? If he's so minted and he doesn't need anything, why did he hire a publicist? And why does he have, have a publisher that's working with him on this? And why does he have a social media manager? Like everybody needs something. You just have to assess what that is in the time. And you're not dealing with them directly. You're dealing with the person who's under them that makes 50 grand a year in Manhattan. They need a lot, right? They're starting their career. They probably have three years, five years of experience. These are people that need a lot. 
and you take the relationship to the point where that person is like, I love working with you, you're really easy to work with, and you're good for things out kind of offline, so to speak, right? Like, I am in touch with people who leave one company and land at another one, and they're like, oh, I'm so surprised you reached out to me. And I'm like, oh, why? We did great when I was buying ads from you at this place. And they're like, oh, well, now I'm on the sell side and I represent clients. And I go, oh, let me know if you have any clients that might wanna buy ads on the Jordan Harbinger show. And she's like, oh, well, actually I do. So now I'm making money because I reached out to somebody who I used to buy from who's now selling. Well, they always need something. And it's not hard to assess people's needs. The reason most people are bad at this is because they have their heads so far up their about what they want for themselves, they're not even thinking about what other people could possibly want. It's not that it's hard to decode, it's that they're dedicating absolutely zero brain power towards that, zero. So you it's know? really, it's what I, if I hear you correctly, it's, it's kind of a limiting belief to even think that way, to say, mm -hmm. oh, you know, this person can never need anything from me, yeah. what could I possibly do for them? Mm -hmm. And so I actually kind of you know wrap this into something else that's actually near and dear to my heart is, you built this whole first business. You got through the, the attorney thing. You started up, you launched this whole thing. And then some at some point in your career, when you got super seasoned and you're like, man, I'm on this rocket ship forward, it broke apart. And this mm -hmm. happened to me as well. Uh, I had you know a big breakup in the middle of my career, which I thought was on a rocket ship. And so how did you restart in that? And and I'm sure a lot of this ties into some of the stuff we we just talked to totally. and network and some of that stuff. But what gave you that strength and how did you kind of find your way back to the ship? Yeah. So luckily, the business that I was in before the Jordan Harbinger show was definitely not a rocket ship. It was a dysfunctional kind of crappy place to work, if I'm honest. And there was a lot of internal strife. And I was already, had been for years, been working on the same networking stuff that I'm talking about now, digging the well before I was thirsty, so to speak. Not thinking I would ever be thirsty, but thinking, okay, eventually we'll make enough money where my business partners will be satisfied, they can stop wasting it, we can start taking on the initiatives that other people are telling us we need to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so we started to get slowly and painfully in that direction. And then there was a series of other events where I just realized, okay, every time we have a success, one of the guys in particular was sort of hell-bent on taking us two steps back for every step forward. And, and it started to become really clear to me and to others that I'd consulted about this that who are sort of like psychologists and experts and business coaches and things like that. They were like, oh, this is actually just a person sabotaging themselves. And since your wagon is hitched to theirs, you are just also going to fail until this person stops creating emergencies out of nowhere by forgetting to balance the books, just stupid like that that gets people in trouble in business. And you've seen this before in like relationships, right? Somebody who's dating somebody and they're great. They're like, I'm going to go cheat on them because I'm freaking out, right? And ruin the whole thing. And you're like, what are you doing? And you're, the answer is sabotaging themselves. And the programming is there. And I realized that my business partner, one of them was especially like this. And I thought, okay, I have to leave. So I started to make preparations for doing that. And as I started to do that and agreed on a amicable separation, that other party was like, oh, actually, I'm going to not follow through on what we'd agreed about. And I was like, okay, I can either sue you and deal with that. And then all of my like mentors and friends and experts in the industry were like, don't even bother, loserville, start your new thing, get going now, we'll help you. Here's a bunch of money, here's a bunch of help, connections, whatever it is, just get going. And I did that. And then they sued me which is funny because I didn't breach the contract. They wanted to allege that I did. The mediator was like, get this crap off my desk. The judge was like, no, this is nonsense. So they lost. 
and they were just trying to drag me down. And I was like, oh, interesting. Because when I talked to the people who told me that this was sabotage, they were self-sabotaging. They were like, oh yeah, this is just what self-sabotage people do when it's like the crab bucket thing. They're trying to pull you back in. Like you won't be a party to their sabotage anymore. They're going to try and force you literally by law to like be a part of their destroyed life. And so when that was over, I was like, oh, okay. I understand how this works now. So we built a rocket ship. I took the entire staff with me when I left, so it was kind of like jokes on them, I guess, in a way. But it was super stressful. And the reason that we are 10 times or, you know, it's way more than that. It's like dozens of times larger and, and more profitable than my previous business is because I dug the well before I get thirsty. It's not because I'm some sort of business genius or whatever. It's because I took the team because I had great relationships. I took the advertisers away from the other company because I had good relationships. I took the network that supplied our guests and studios and ads and sales to all that. So I took that with me because I had the relationships. I took the sales team because I had the relationships. So it was really, they didn't expect that. They thought, oh, well, we'll just keep paying those people. And I was like, keep taking your paycheck, but come work for me. I can't afford to pay you and I will make you whole on the back end. So what was funny is I had my whole team working for this other company, still getting paid, and I was like, work for me in the other half of the day, because they're contractors, you know, and then I'll pay you when I am able. And they were like, great. So I ended up taking everybody that I needed, all the resources that I needed, all the relationships that I needed that I'd been making for years. So digging the well before you're thirsty is the best insurance policy that money could never buy, right? You can't, if, if someone was like, I'll give you $2 million of startup capital, but you can't have any of your previous relationships, I'd be like, no way. You know, even if they were like 5 million, it was just, my network was more valuable because instead of starting off and taking five years to ramp up and then another six, because I ran the previous business for 11 years, we were more profitable than the previous business inside the first year, which I didn't expect, honestly. I, wouldn't, I didn't even see that coming. So when I went through this similar process, I came out of that with like this like immense chip on my shoulder and I, st sure. I still kind of yeah. had this like I don't know it was like a like it it, it burned at me for a while mm -hmm. right and then mm -hmm. eventually I came out of that and I don't even think about that anymore. Did yeah. you go through a similar process where you came yeah. out like just firing hard and then it was yes. and then now you're kind of like oh those guys are doing small stuff compared yeah, to Yeah, it's it was it's kind of a joke now and, and like the amount of worrying and stress that I had is almost like it was uh, it's same, silly in yeah, retrospect. Exactly. Um, you you're just like you're like I can't believe I even like was thinking this way back then. Exactly. Yeah, like what what what's the deal? But yeah, I was pissed because I had done the majority of the work on this particular business and I'd done so much for it and then we negotiated an amicable split and then they reneged on it and then they sued me and I was like, this isn't fair. But then it was like, you know, really the best revenge is to live well. And now it's hilarious because it's like, it really is sort of silly to even compare. I mean, we're, we're something like 30 times more profitable or more than the previous, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's like, now you it's like being mad it. at a toddler. Yeah. I can't even believe it. <laughs> it's like being, it's like being the cheesecake factory and you know, you're pissed off that some like mom and pop opened a food truck down the street from one of your 300 locations. Like yeah. who, who cares? Right? Like it's That's not right. going to affect you. There's nothing there. I think because it was so personal, that was part of it. And even now, like there's like, oh yeah, so-and-so's saying negative things about you. And I'm like, of, of course this person is like trying to get in and weasel in because th all this person has is like the ability or the desire to stay included in my life in these really sort of like lame ways. Like notice I'm not 
mentioning their name. Unless I'm asked about it, I never really think about it at all. I do get asked about it a lot, so there's that. But it doesn't it doesn't have the same emo- I used to be like, yeah, and you know what? And screw them. And now I'm like, oh yeah. It's a it's bummer like the a way part it turned of your out story. for them. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like a part it of your the- story now that you like laugh at. You're like, yeah, that, that's yeah. why I'm here, actually. For me, it was like one of the best things that, that ever, ever happened. happened obviously, of right? Course. You're like, Always. like, thank God that that happened. And it sucks so bad at the time. But there's so many lessons that I learned in that, like coming away from that. And like, even how I was maybe deficient in that partnership, possibly. I'm curious, like... Mm-hmm. What were some like the major things that you took away that you're doing now that you maybe weren't doing before uh, because of that event? I'm not, well, I guess this is part of not having any business partners other than my now wife, but I'm not checking with anyone to see if it's going to hurt their feelings if I make a decision, but no healthy business has that, by the way, right? No, right. I, I, rem- I spend an inordinate amount of time being like, okay, So here's a marketing plan that I came together with a really knowledgeable person. How much is so-and-so's ego going to be affected by this if it succeeds? And then are they going to then shut it down in the middle? Or do I have to like include them and make them look good? Because if I do, then I need to change this and that and the other thing. And it was exhausting. And we spent like more than half of, me and the marketing team spent like, and the sales team, literally spent like half or more than half of the time being like, how do we manage this person's ego so that they don't screw up the entire thing and shut down our entire operation? And even then, it was kind of like 50-50 crapshoot to to see if we do that. So the amount of mental or emotional labor is so much less. Um, The other thing that I'm doing now, like from a practical standpoint, is I'm making sure that I have a really good gut check of who I work with. And like, I'm not saying like use your intuition. I mean, test people out, make sure that you know that you grow and people grow at different rates. So like if, if a contractor has been with me for five years, that's great. I'm loyal to them. They're loyal to me. But also you you can't be, you can't have your blinders on and be like, this person's going to be here forever. Why are they only working this way? Why did this project not work out? Why is this sort of sloppily done? You know, and we've had to sort of, out, we've outgrown some of the folks over the years and we've had a p- other people outgrow us where they're like, hey, I, I can't work for the same amount anymore. I have other clients and I'm like, go with my blessing. And if you ever need anything, we'll be here. But please take more money. You know, train your replacement, but like take more money. Don't feel like you have to stay with us out of loyalty. And that's worked out really, really well. Like let people grow at different rates and don't take it personally if they do. So that's a huge one. Also doubling down on my networking. Like before it was, oh yeah, dig the well before you get thirsty and like be cool. Now it's like make my every week my CRM is on point. Every week I'm hitting X number of people up. Every day I'm doing this drill. Every day I'm doing that drill. All the stuff from the six-minute networking course that um, hopefully we can just sort of, it's free. We can maybe plug at the end here. But all that stuff, I'm like religious about it because I realize, yes, I'm really busy, which is the excuse everyone has for not networking. I'm in the middle of this crazy project. It's like, do it in five minutes a day. Be religious about it like you are with your meditation or like you're showering. You know, like that's something you just gotta, you just gotta do it. Doesn't matter if you don't have time. You just figure out when to do it, you do it. Because... Digging the well before you thirsty, nobody thinks they're going to be thirsty. I, I get emails every day. Right. I don't need this. I'm a teacher. Really? You don't think you're going to ever need to find another job? Like, how strong is that union, in your opinion, that you ne- you're never going to need to find another job? Maybe you won't get fired, but what happens when you get sick of, of teaching in this area and you move? What happens if you get married and you got to move to a different state? You have no connections. What are you going to do? You know, submit your resume to monster.com? that's the front door with a huge line around the block. You want to be able to call, 
you want to be able to call and walk through the kitchen, you know, to use sort of the old uh, metaphor. 80 to 90% of people get their jobs through their network. And those resume sites and applying and all this, that is the sucker's play. If you're doing that, it's because you did not dig the well before you got thirsty and you've done everything wrong. It's up until like that waiting point. in line at the bar, right? hundred like percent. Guys, yeah. I look at those guys and I'm like, well, how do you sit in a line for like two hours to get into yeah. this bar and I can just walk right in? Like, It's funny. Like, it's funny. This is a perfect example, right? So people go, oh, well, you know, it's Friday night. It's really busy. And I'm like, well, I came here on Tuesday and I talked with the doorman and the bouncer. So I'm going to cut in front of all y'all and be like, yo, what's up, Tim? It looks like a long line. And it's like, no, no, you go ahead, man. Thank you. Cool. Well, so now I invested a couple hours on a given on a random Tuesday or a couple of minutes on a Tuesday, walking in here, grabbing a quick one, saying hi to everybody and walking out. Now you're out here for two and a half hours in the cold on a Friday. I'm ROI positive, right? I never, like, I never understood that. <laughs> yeah. I just can't. Man, Jordan, uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Please tell people how they can get involved in your networking course, sure. anything else, any other way that they can reach you. Yeah. So the Jordan Harbinger show is my podcast. I have on amazing guests. I'd love it if people would check it out. I don't have anything for sale, including my networking course. It's free. There's no upsells, at least not yet. And I don't think there ever will be, but you know, don't hold me to that. It's jordanharbinger.com slash course. The podcast is the Jordan Harbinger show. I just, the reason I, people go, why don't you have anything for sale? It's like, look, the more people that know this networking stuff, the better, because it, it reprograms your brain to do this right. And it also makes people kind of nice, like nicer, because they know that they're not an island and that they might need someone for something that they can't foresee. So I feel like this is like a gift to toot my own horn. It's like a gift to the world. If you get people treating each other better and helping each other more, it's like, all right, this is this is where we need to be. None of this, like, I got mine F you nonsense that we're seeing a lot today. You know, it's my, my yeah. punch against that. It's amazing. So guys, check it out. Jordan Harbinger, check out his networking course. We're so excited to have you, Jordan. Thanks so much. Thanks for yeah, making the time, it. man. It's It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, this is fun, guys. Thank you so much. Anytime. So my biggest takeaway is that, man, you got to dig the well before you need it. And we talked about a little bit in the intro, but it was, became so clear, right? If you want to raise money, if you need money now, then don't start building relationships now and ask people for money when you don't have a relationship, right? Have that relationship first, and sometimes that takes some time, but you've got to invest the time now if maybe sometime, somewhere down the road you want something. Yeah. And just like Jordan mentioned, you can't just go and approach people and ask them for something in return at the first time you meet. This is something that gets built over time. And I think people get confused sometimes about wh which one do I do first? Do I find the deal first and then the money will come because I have such a great deal? Or do I go after the money first and then finally a deal comes and the latter is actually going to work better for you because not people need to trust you. They need to understand you. You have to have that relationship built in advance before they're going to put their money with you. doesn't matter how good the deal is. They don't even know if it's a good deal because they don't even know who you are. So I think that that's such a big part of what we do, definitely in the real estate world and just in life, getting out of that, well, I got to send my resume in and more like, hey, I need, I have a warm lead into you know, a, a, a business opportunity or what, whatever it is. And so one part of this that I think was really interesting is like, well, you know, there's a part of it where it's like, well, I kind of need, you know, a mentor or something. I need to get someone in front of me or I need a new relationship that I don't have. And he mentioned, hey, listen, everybody needs something. It's, it's a limiting belief to think that people don't need anything 
at all. That was a key thing for me as well, is everyone wants or needs something. You know, it's the same thing. We're going after a big investor. They're worth $100 million. Like, how do we get this person's attention? Well, what does that person want? How can we add value to that? And I think you have to be a little resourceful. Think the stance that, oh my gosh, this person doesn't need anything, as Jordan clearly stated, is not true at all. You just got to find that angle. Even getting guests on the show, you know, how am I going to get these VIPs on the show? What can we possibly provide to them in value? And you got to you got to find that angle. And then, of course, it takes time. Meaning that I can't send a single email and expect them to go, "Oh yeah, I'm come, I'm investing a million dollars." No, you got to do have multiple touch points, and every touch point, you got to figure out how you can provide value. So it's a little bit of effort. Take the risk, guys. You know, honestly. This is funny to have Jordan on the show. I had to take a risk because we, we didn't have any ties and I did. And here he is. And honestly, that's kind of how it goes is if you're thinking about it, if it's in the back of your head and you're like, listen, I don't know if I should reach out. I don't know if I should do this or, or, or move in this direction. Just do it. Just take the step, reach out to that person, get inside their network, do whatever you got to do to make the right connection because it's often more often than you think could pay off big. Yeah, I agree. It's it's all about building relationships uh, with brokers and uh, investors and you got to do it now and you got to figure out what is the angle how you can provide value and you have to stick with it. I mean, like you said, it you know, took him 2 years to Dennis Rodman on on the show. I I've worked uh, you know, over a year getting getting people on the show like Robert Kiyosaki even longer or, or Grant Cardone. And it's the same thing for investors as well. Is really, you know, create a target list and start reaching out to in a very intentional way. And I think that's that's the that's the secret as well. So, hopefully you guys find that uh, valuable. Catch you guys next episode. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading the free blueprint on closing your first multifamily deal. Head over to themichaelblanc.com slash blueprint to get the free training.